It is Friday, September 11th, 2020. For our intro today, we will just be taking a moment of silence. My name is Luis Bianco, RN CPS, and today is the 25th episode of Patient US, Initials Used for Confidentiality. And today's episode is about, drumroll please, shared trauma. Just play the song already. I'm the passive aggressor. You're a plastic pretender. In fact, you act as a censor. I defy you, not my truth. Just what you find true. I'm not defined by fear. He defines you. Stone cold loner. Show postponer. Prone to alone, but been known to vulture. I'm a parasite, and I'm terrified of your glaring eyes. So please keep staring, guys, or I won't even dare Attention, try. attention. I need attention. I need to feed off friendship and presence. I need applause and some pats on the back. Just a couple of claps, enough to keep me comfortable fast. Attention, attention. I need attention. I need to feed off fake threats and questions I need remand, so punish me It's better than nothing, please Something I'm hungering, but grudgingly Hello everyone It is I, Louis Bianco RNCPS, your host And as are many things In the life of Patient US Although we are excited about one thing We are ultimately more greatly saddened and carrying a heavy heart over something else, over our shared crises. So although I would like to be excited in this moment that we have made it to 25, I am not. It's as simple as that. Good morning, good morning, good morning to you. Good morning, good morning, and how do you do? Today is a very difficult day for patient U.S. Today is a very difficult day for parent number one. Today is a very difficult day for parent number two. It is a difficult day for the staff. It is a difficult day for the doctor. It is a difficult day for the family. It is a difficult day for the unit. And beyond, for the city, for the state, for the country. Our topic today is shared trauma because on this day, we experienced a shared trauma. In my book, I talk a little bit about the concepts of trauma, waking up dormant genetic traits, the possibility that the people in your bloodline may have suffered from certain mood instabilities or may, may have been right on the edge 
you take parent number one's lineage and parent number two's lineage, you combine them, you may have this perfect little storm within your genetic coding. However, you also may never have to deal with any of that because oftentimes trauma becomes the spark or the catalyst that gets the wick moving towards the bomb. The wick hopefully is long, but when it reaches the bomb, there is that explosion. There is that... I don't even want to use that word today. I'm just going to keep... I'm, I'm, I'm trying to think of a, a different way to use it because I'm afraid to use that word. Bomb. I'm scared of everything. I'm scared to talk. I'm scared to speak honestly. I'm scared to speak symbolically. This, in my opinion, is a byproduct or a product born in the aftermath of a trauma. Multiple traumas. And ultimately, some of those traumas are then shared traumas. What we are talking about in shared trauma is simply that there are some traumatic events that occur that affect more than any singular person. It could be the death of a loved one. It could be a natural disaster. It could be a pandemic. It could be an act of terrorism. Based on everything we've talked about, there is a possibility that any single action could be traumatic to any other person. Trauma is not an episode I have done yet. Please do not misconstrue the discussion of shared trauma to mean that this is the episode on trauma. It is not. We are going to talk about the shared crisis, the shared trauma, and the shared grief because as we are seeing in patient U.S.'s case, there is a great amount of dysfunction when multiple people experience the same crisis at the same time. How can I say that? I normally do not say a lot of my words with some sort of definitive tone, but I have a very high percentage of certainty that this is true. When we all experience a traumatic issue at the same time, if you look at Kubler-Ross's stages of grief, which are in order, by the way, denial, anger, bargaining, depression, and acceptance, a shared loss, a shared crisis, will now cause multiple people, systems, areas, however you want to look at it, to go through this grieving process. And every individual may possibly go through the grieving process at a different pace, causing a community, causing a family to be on different pages for possibly years or a lifetime because, the, because of each's location on this roadmap that is grieving following trauma, shared trauma at this moment. We could take a look at patient U.S.'s family structure. It's easy. Not easy to talk about, but it's, it's just more simple than maybe some of the other shared traumas that could be discussed. Parent number one, parent number two, and patient U.S. So again, those stages of grief are denial, anger, bargaining, depression, 
and acceptance. Let's say that patient U.S. is still in the denial phase and that parent number one is past denial and already angry and that parent number two is already depressed. And I'm saying already because there aren't a set amount of days, weeks, months, or years attached to any of those five stages. The reality is that patient U.S. could remain in denial about not only the trauma, but their hand in the trauma, or if they had no hand in the trauma, their role in the rebuilding following the trauma. If patient U.S. remains in denial of the entirety of the situation, the reasons for it, the truth of it, and the responsibility of what to do after it, then patient U.S. remains in denial. Who, who are we? Who is any single person to tell them that they are grieving wrong following a trauma? When it's, and when it's a shared trauma, now it's not only possibly the family. If we look at a greater trauma, it is the family. It is patient U.S. It is parent number one. It is parent number two. And wherever they go to seek help, the people who are helping them have also experienced the trauma. So now you have people who have not necessarily even checked in on themselves because they are being asked to stand on the front lines and continue to do their jobs in the middle of crisis. You have people whose job it is not to function clearly during a crisis. You have everyone traumatized. And although the brave may continue to fight and function, which is admirable, the necessity for an assessment, whether of self or others, exists that emotional check-in. Holy moly, what do I feel about what just happened? How clear is my mind? Maybe we have a, a doctor who's currently uh, depressed and a consumer who's currently angry. The angry consumer is allowed to yell they are justifiably angry, so they have every right to do it. The depressed doctor has to pretend that none of the yelling scares them, hurts their feelings, amplifies what they are already experiencing. They have to maintain this cool, calm, and composed outward appearance. And if they possibly slip up, if they possibly make a mistake, if they possibly do something outside of the realms of their their job description or their character or their own moral compass, they will get attacked as if we aren't all humans experiencing a shared trauma. So we end up asking for people to be patient with us and to give us complete acceptance for whatever way we decide to deal with the trauma that they have also experienced and we place expectations that they don't do anything wrong. I have every right to act outside of my character. If you act outside of your character, it is an attack. However, the trauma has affected all of us. If you look through history, shared trauma will do one of two things. Again, and you can describe every single thing in the middle. I am someone who likes to boil down complicated and detailed descriptions of situations to their basics so that we can actually together look at them. 
and the basics of this, as far as what will happen after a shared trauma, it will either be dividing or it will unite. In patient U.S.'s life, there have been shared traumas that have occurred in which the family of patient U.S., including parent number one and parent number two and patient U.S., rallied together to fix. There was a time when shared trauma united. There was no time to blame. There was no time to look around and analyze. But we've learned since is possibly that there was also little time devoted to all of this mental analysis because stuff just needed done. I am a complete proponent for the necessity of educating on mental wellness. However, if we haven't educated on it, I have a very high intolerance to the judgment of every single person who acts outside of what we think they should during a crisis. And isn't it possible that our hypervigilance and our increased awarenesses of what everybody else is doing constantly is a sign of how we are handling our trauma? We're looking for blame that will divide. The war is not against the trauma. The war is not against whose fault the trauma is. The trauma has occurred. And if the fight starts following the trauma, the implosion begins. The war is against hatred. Hatred is being spawned out of trauma. Resentment is growing. All during a period of time when people may truly be making decisions outside of their logical and expected cognition because they are experiencing a trauma, the same trauma that we are also experiencing, that you are experiencing, that everybody you know is experiencing, parent number one, parent number two, and patient U.S., we are all experiencing the same trauma. So for patient U.S. to have these grave expectations of parent number one or parent number two to do everything perfect, that is a sign that the grieving process is still incredibly active and that there is a ton of work to do, justified or not. If parent number one decides to have these wild expectations or manipulate patient U.S. during their grieving process, that could possibly be parent number one inappropriately dealing with their trauma because they have ignored trauma their entire lives. They've looked the other way. They've refused to address it. You are not going to be able to pull them out of denial or to make them act appropriately when they finally face this fear that they've ignored their whole lives. Forcefully turning and getting them to look at the truth is not going to help them during a shared trauma and it could possibly traumatize them further whether they admit it or not. We are allowed to look at behaviors and make decisions. If we weren't so stubborn 
parent number one. And parent number two, your manipulation has increased as well. You may be the most fearful. And during this trauma, because of how often you are enmeshed and involved in codependent relationships, you are now being fueled by the reactions of others still unaware or unwilling to admit your own and stop there. We are spinning a shared truth during a period of time where there very well may be nothing more important than the truth during a trauma. When decisions need to be made, when decisions must be made based on the facts that exist, if the facts that are being given are webs actually being spun by people whose perceptions are all different, how in the world is patient U.S. supposed to know which way is up? Even during patient U.S.'s descent, there are grabs from their support systems and from the systems that exist and that are meant to protect them. As patient U.S. falls, they are looking to others to lift them up and the sad, scary truth is that everybody else is falling too. And then all of a sudden, patient U.S. becomes responsible to save everybody else who they have been looking to to save them. And in that moment, when you are experiencing grief, if you are in the denial, the angry, the depressed, heck, if you are in any single phase other than past your grief, the stress of recovery may be greater than one can handle. Logic, of course, tells us pick yourself up by your bootstraps and just move on already. You just, that's over. Or wait, you're still mad about that. You're still scared about that. That what, yes, if we haven't moved past our grief, we will live traumatized and be more vulnerable to re-traumatization. Look at what is occurring in patient U.S.'s current life. A singular issue has now turned into multiple issues. Things being drug up from years ago, from months ago, as the attacks have begun. The initial crisis in the timeline of what we are experiencing, of what patient U.S. and their family are experiencing, is not even going to be the worst. It may not even be the shared trauma. Many of us on individual levels experience traumas. And although trauma is terrible, we're, we're, this isn't our trauma episode. We will do a trauma episode. By the way, this, may, this is a commercial-free episode because I, it's just, I'm tired of being silly. I'm becoming angry and sad and scared and all of the feelings somebody experiences following a crisis. The mucky part of all of this is that somebody experiencing a trauma individually can be traumatic 
to somebody else observing the experienced trauma. The best case scenario in a handful of scenarios that all suck is that one person experienced a trauma, however their support system is not currently going through any type of grieving process or not involved in trauma of their own so they can receive actual help and they can actually be lifted up. When multiple people are involved in traumas at the same time, it is near impossible to give full attention to anything other than one's own thoughts, one's own feelings, one's own behaviors, or sadly, there are other people who have a hard time recognizing anything other than others' behaviors, others' choices, and sometimes, which is a sign, others' thoughts. Because, hey, we know that. We can, we can decide what people were thinking. Discussing the past. Bringing up issues that the entirety of the family thought were resolved. In any single moment, saying something is resolved and revisiting it through the usage of recalling it during conflict as if it's ammunition All of these are possibly signs that the grieving process is continuing. But in the midst of experiencing the grieving process, you are now causing others trauma. So although you may not deserve any blame, you are at fault. Accidentally. The amount of accidental damage we are causing at this moment is astronomical. It is like a bunch of snakes who were not taught how to withhold their bite. And they're all just biting each other. Why? Why are we biting during a period of time in which there is such serious crisis and trauma occurring How in the world is this family fighting itself, fighting with each other? The answer is grief. The answer is trauma. It is being handled incredibly poorly. Denial, that first piece of trauma, is a big part of it. Instead of looking at the actuality, instead of looking at what is directly in front of our face, we are going to look behind it, we are going to look in front of it, we are going to look everywhere around it, except directly at it. What is it? Fill in your blank. What is that thing that you just won't look at? In our family, in this family, in Patient U.S.'s family at this moment, it's the truth. It is a shared recollection of logic, of limitation. It is a a recognition that bad things happen and sometimes it's not anyone's fault. And where the fault ends up lying is in the behaviors and the response to the bad thing that occurred. 
And I've got to tell you, if all we try to do is pinpoint whose fault the bad thing was, none of us are handling our grief with much integrity. And maybe we shouldn't. Maybe integrity is not necessary during a grieving period. I choose to disagree. Leaders maintain integrity. Leaders maintain focus regardless of how many alarms are going off inside of their head during a realistically scary situation. We need to look to the people whose hands are not shaking, whose voices are not trembling, and whose feet are firmly planted on the ground no matter what comes towards them. Trauma breeds trauma. Shared trauma breeds shared trauma. The dormant genetics that we have been living with are now awake, and we are, as a group, as a family, grieving at different paces with different intensities, some people experiencing complex emotion for the first time in their lives, some people experiencing complex emotions every day of their lives, all living in the same timeline. Patient U.S. is in the highest position of threat at this moment. We know that children emulate. We are conditioned to look and be like when we are children. If all patient U.S. has seen is panic, rage, accusation, blame, denial, anger, emotional extremes, moral extremes, if they are surrounded by it, if it is being demonstrated by their parents on a daily basis and they love their parents and we have taught children their whole lives to be like the adults, what do we think Patient U.S. is going to do? If Patient U.S. lived a life before this crisis, seeing things that weren't crisis be treated like crisis, they are already in the grieving process before something as traumatic as what is occurring occurs. Their life consists of looking past, looking in front of, looking beside, and focusing on everything but what is meant to be focused on. They are not born that way. They have been conditioned that way. There has never been a greater time for self-assessment, for self-reflection. This is a sad day for everyone in Patient U.S.'s family and beyond. This is a sad day for Patient U.S. Who is it going to be? As we have talked about in relationships before, it may not have been the mess that you made, but it can be the mess that you clean. Which party in this family will step up? Will it be parent number one, parent number two, 
or patient US because it oftentimes only takes one person within the family to be bigger than petty conflict to avoid the easy grabs to sidestep the made to inflame comments to be focused on the improvement of something that is broken put their nose to the grindstone and get to work what happens even if it is slow is that others start looking at how their own behaviors are different from this person who they believe is trying to help and they start to feel more and more negative about their own petulant behaviors. It's an even more powerful statement when the person deciding to be the leader is also the person who has experienced the trauma. This day, this sad day of shared trauma is still ever present in the consciousness of everybody who experienced it. The grieving process for some may be near over. The grieving process for others may have never even happened. And yet here we are, fighting yelling, setting our traps. We are predatorial in moments when we are injured. But we were not always like that. Let us look at previous traumas that have been shared. Let us look at the strength and courage that has risen from those traumas. Let us look at the leaders that were born out of those traumas. Let us look at how collectively communities before us, families before yours, Patient US, figured ways out of very intense and damaging and unforgettable shared traumas. Make no mistake, I am not making light of any of this. As I have said multiple times, even during this episode, when one is grieving, the timeline is yours. Far be it from me to tell any person that they are taking too long in their grief. Far be it from me to tell someone they are grieving if they don't believe they are. I am sitting here in an objective position, simply pleading to patient US and their family to consider experiencing grief, sharing trauma, and collectively growing. What other choice do we have? We cannot undo what has been done. Today is a sad day. It is a sad memory to everyone who has been impacted, who has been experiencing grief, who has been broken by it, whose lives have been shattered into everyone who experienced grief and still found a way to put on your uniforms and work during 
but can only be called a, a, a crisis of epic proportions to everyone. Please be kind. Thank you for not giving up. Thank you for holding on. Thank you for your spirit. I'm sorry for the losses. I'm sorry for the negatives. I'm sorry for the grief. Please be calm. Please be humble. We can do this, but we're gonna need patience, U.S.